All right, good evening, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started with our class for the evening, but there are several announcements that I need to cover and, uh, and some prayer requests that we need to mention as we get started. As far as announcements are concerned, uh, first off, if you're joining us online, we encourage you to go online and fill out that member uh, attendance form on the Watch Life page to let us know you're, you're tuning in and are a part of this. And uh, we'd, we'd love to have a record of, of your participation. Um, also, we want to remind the young professionals that Saturday there will be a fellowship at Greg and, Bonadie, Greg and Debbie Bonadie's house from 4 to 8 p.m. That's for the young professionals. And on Sunday, April... Wait, no. So for Sunday, May 2nd... Wait a minute. I'm making sure I got the dates right here. I believe it's this coming Sunday. There is supposed to be a uh, potluck at the home of Chun and John Beer for the Korean members, so be sure to uh, uh, remember that at uh, around noon on Sunday for our Korean members, a potluck at the, the home of John and Chun Beer. And then um, we also want to remind everybody that this Sunday is Senior Sunday. We invite everyone to stay after the morning worship to honor our graduating high school seniors. They will have display tables available to view on Saturday from 2 to 4 and then on Sunday before and after the worship service. After our morning worship, our high school seniors will be recognized and individually prayed for by our elders. So please be aware of that, and, and if you want to um, look at their graduation tables uh, with some extra social distance, that will be available on Saturday from 2 to 4. Um, as, also, don't forget, our next Go and Do event is coming quickly. It'll be on Saturday, May 15th. We will be uh, partnering in our community to help uh, address some uh, struggling areas. And, uh, and we uh, encourage you to keep your um, attention on that upcoming event. It's going to be a great opportunity for us to uh, reach out to our community and, and, and help them in some unique ways. So please remember the Go and Do event on May 15th. That's Saturday, May 15th. In regards to uh, prayer requests and health updates, Jean Henderson has been diagnosed with liver cancer. She is currently undergoing treatment and requests no phone calls or food at this time or visits. Uh, she is soliciting our prayers, so please keep Miss Jean in your prayers. Also, LaVon Uptograft had a permanent pacemaker put in on April 26th. Uh, keep him in your prayers as he uh, recovers from that procedure. And we got news this morning that Becky Whitehead fell and broke her right arm. So keep Miss Becky in your prayers as well. Next Wednesday, I will be having a procedure to remove a little skin cancer from my scalp. So I am not planning to uh, be prepared to teach because I don't know that, how significant it will be and, or how weird my head's going to look uh, because there will be hair gone and there will be bandages wrapped. So next Wednesday night, Gene Clower is going to fill in for me. He's going to uh, uh, speak a little bit more from uh, the book of Revelation, a follow-up to what he did a few weeks ago. Uh, so be aware of that, that next Wednesday, Gene Clower will be uh, teaching in this class for me that, that one Wednesday, hopefully. Um, with that being said, let us start off with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening. Um, we come before you as, as a body of believers who are here to study your word and who are here to uh, benefit from one another's fellowship. And, and it's our prayer that tonight uh, we, we walk away being uplifted from, in our faith from what we study and being uplifted in our faith from, from what we gain from each other. Uh, 
Lord, we, we come before you grateful for another day and, and grateful uh, for the blessings we have in our life, that many of which we, we take for granted, many of which we, we fail to recognize. But we come tonight, Lord, and we give you praise and honor and glory for all the good things you do for us, especially for sending your Son to die for us. And right now, Lord, we want to take this opportunity to lift up some people in prayer. We are mindful of, of uh, Miss Jean right now uh, with her uh, uh, diagnosis, and we pray that you will be with her and that the treatments she is receiving uh, will work well for her, and, and may you uh, minimize any side effects or any issues and, and help her to uh, heal and recover. Lord, we're mindful of Vaughn Updegraft as he's been dealing with, several, with, with a lot of medical issues recently, and we're, we're grateful that he was able to have the pacemaker placed, and we pray that you uh, be with him and, and help him to uh, uh, recover and, and, and go home. And Lord, we were mindful of Miss Becky Whitehead with her injury today, and may... Um, uh, may her arm heal quickly, and, and may you uh, minimize her discomfort and, and be with her at this time. Lord, we, uh, we have a lot of things going on right now, and we ask for your blessings on, on all these ministries and activities that we are doing to help build one another up and to help spread your word. And may we, Lord, may, may, we, uh, may we be lights in this community, and may we succeed and representing your kingdom to the best of our ability. We love you, Lord, and it is through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. All right, if you are joining us for the first time, we are in the midst of a study of uh, how we got the Bible. Let's see here. Yes, we do have it up there. Uh, and in this study, we've been examining how um, Scripture came to to, to be in its form. We're studying how we can have confidence that what we possess in the, our bound New Testaments or our digital New Testaments is, in fact, the Word of God. And we've been focusing thus far on this, this order that we've been going through of how we can conduct this study. And what we've noticed so far is that, uh, that, that first we've got to address inspiration. And we spent the early weeks, a couple of weeks of this study, on the subject of inspiration and how we can be confident that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. From there, we started focusing on transmission and spent six or seven weeks examining the transmission of the text. And when we talk about the transmission of the text, we're talking about how God's Word has been preserved and passed down over the centuries. We, we looked at manuscripts. We looked at how we can trust those manuscripts or, or, excuse me, how we can compare and contrast those manuscripts to produce a trustworthy um, a, a original base text of the New Testament. And we've examined uh, much evidence there and how we can deal with uh, textual variants and things like that. Today, tonight, we're going to transition into the category that I have called collection. And what we're going to be examining is how, in particular with the New Testament, those 27 books that we have came to be brought together and identified as the New Testament that we now have in our Bibles. And so our focus tonight is on collection, on how these books came to be identified as the New Testament canon. Now that takes us to this word canon. You may have heard that term thrown around a lot. It's what I like to call a church word. 
It's one of those words that gets used a lot in religious circles or in spiritual conversations, but doesn't get utilized a lot outside of that. Now, it has gained prominence in, in, in culture today because now we have uh, entertainment that is brought together in a canon. You have a Star Wars canon now. You have a MCU, Marvel Cinematic Universe canon, and so on. So now we're getting these entertainment industries that are buying into a word that they've adopted from Christianity. But the word canon comes from a Greek word, a Greek word that it is transliterated from. Do you remember the difference between a translated word and a transliterated word? A transliterated word is one that you take, you pronounce it in your language the way it's pronounced in the previous language. So the Greek word for canon is, guess what? Canon. Spelled a little bit differently with a K instead of a C, but still the same word. And the Greek word canon means a reed or a cane. And what it's referring to is how that object, like a reed or a cane that grows out, not, not a cane like a walking cane, but, but a, a stalk, something that grows out in, in the fields, how one of those items was used as a measuring device. You could employ it to mark off a certain measurement based on the size of that reed or, or cane. And because a reed or a cane started being used for measuring purposes, the term that refers to a reed or a cane came to be known as a, a word denoting a standard or a rule by which something is, is judged. And when it got added in particular in the conversation about the Bible, the term canon came to mean a, a rule or a standard by which something is judged to be inspired or authoritative. And that's something being a text. How do we know that a particular text, a particular book, a particular letter, a particular document, a particular manuscript is inspired, is authoritative? How can we be certain it belongs in the text of Scripture? How do we know it's a piece of the canon? So that's where the word comes from and what it essentially means. So when we're talking about the New Testament canon, we're talking about the collection of authoritative and inspired writings that make up the New Testament in our Bibles. And what we want to consider this evening is what factors contribute to the development of the New Testament canon. Now, I'm not going into the details of, of specifically how a book is defined as canonical, or, or let me rephrase that, or, or what the um, evidence of canonicity for each individual book is. Instead, what I want to do is, is show you how the canon developed over time. And it starts in the first century, in particular, with preparation. You know, when the, uh, when the New Testament books were being written, they weren't all written at once. They weren't all sent to the same location. They weren't all originated in the same location. So you have um, Paul. Paul begins his writing and his, his ministry uh, of writing quite early, possibly as early as the 40s A.D., but definitely in the 50s. And you might not have somebody like James write for much later. Actually, James did probably write early, but some people think he wrote late. It's John. John's the one I meant, not James. But John doesn't seem to start his writing ministry until much later in his life. And most of his works 
don't appear until the 80s or 90s AD. And so you have a very broad range of time. In fact, let me throw this up here. Oh, I've got to skip forward a little bit. There we go. This is a timeline from approximately AD 30 to AD 90, and some of it's getting cut off because we don't have this framed very well with our projector. Um, but over here on the left, around AD 30, consider that the time period when the church is instituted. And from there, this is a, a basic idea of when each of the, the books of the New Testament were written. And, it's, and I'm giving a, a broad range based on uh, typical standard beliefs about those writings. And so you can have some written very early in the first century, some written very late. And, and though they might be close in some years, they can be very distant as well. And you might have Peter writing his letter from Rome while James is writing from Jerusalem. Those are two very distinct locations and starting points for their texts. And now they've got to be disseminated to the people to whom they were written. You also have to consider that the texts of the New Testament, some of them are written to con specific congregations, like the letter to the Philippians is written to, guess what, the church in Philippi. And the, the letter to um, um, uh, the First Corinthians written to the church in Corinth. But then you have other letters, like Galatians, not written to one specific congregation necessarily, but likely written to several congregations that exist within a particular province or geographic location. We know for a fact that Revelation was written to at least seven different specific congregations that would all receive it. And we know that there are other letters written to specific individuals like First and Second Timothy and Titus and Philemon, those were written by Paul to a person, not a congregation. Then you have a letter like First Peter, written to uh, the Jews of a general location. You see, you have this broad range of audience in addition to a broad range of, of uh, when they were written and a broad range of where they were written from, and a broad range of their final destination. So what you have happening is a period of time is going to have to go by in order for the, the non-original recipients of the letter to come across that letter. The church in Corinth is going to receive the, the 1 Corinthians letter, but it's going to take some time before somebody down in Antioch sees the letter because it didn't initially go to them. You have a lot of factors like that. So what ends up happening in the first century is you have all of these inspired documents written, and then you have them uh, engaged in the process of, of accumulating these documents over time. So the first century preparation is the, is the, first, uh, the first step in the development of the New Testament canon, and, and the steps toward the canonization of certain texts were initiated by the first century church. And I, I want to show you from Scripture how we can see that starting. It's in some, we'll, we'll look at some passages that you don't really think about. You, you don't look at those passages and go, that's a reference to canon until you really think about it. So let's, uh, let's consider that for just a moment. For instance, we can go to the New Testament, and the New Testament contains instructions regarding the authentication of texts. The New Testament is going to have these, these uh, instructions that, hey, you need to not listen to everything you hear because there are some things that are true and there are some things that are false. Go with me, if you will, to the book of 2 Thessalonians and go to chapter 2. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
And I want you in particular to notice the instructions that Paul gives in verse 2 of this book, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 2. He instructs the church in Thessalonica to not, he instructs them to not, he, that to be it keeps throwing me off. He instructs them not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Paul issues a warning. Don't assume everything you receive is from me. See, even in the first century, there started to be forgeries. And people would write documents and attach Paul's name to it or attach um, Peter's name to it or, or attach another apostle's name to it to give it some credibility. And Paul is telling this congregation, don't just automatically receive a document because it has my name to it. In fact, if you skip over to chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, there's this interesting statement by Paul that I've also put up here from chapter 3 and verse 7, where Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Now, Paul is known for using um, people to write his letters for him. He would dictate and they would write down. But what he's saying at the end of 2 Thessalonians is here, here at the end of this letter, after somebody else has been pinning it for me, I'm now going to attach my signature so you know it's from me, so you know it's authentic. Wouldn't it be cool just to see Paul's signature? Does he slap a smiley face on it somewhere or something like that? You know, it would be just neat to see how Paul would sign his name to a letter. And Paul is saying, you know what? My signature, my handwriting, that's how you know it's from me. Don't believe everything you, you receive. You're going to have to test it. That takes us to another passage, a passage from 1 John. But before we go to 1 John, I want to remind you that in John's gospel... He informs us that there are a lot of things that he nor any other gospel writer recorded about the life of Jesus. If you go over to John chapter um, 20 and, and uh, verse 30, he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. In the very next chapter, John chapter 21 and verse 25, he ends the book by saying that where everything that Jesus did Written down, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So John acknowledges in his gospel that there's more stuff out there that Jesus did that we, ha we don't have recorded in his gospel and likely not in any of the others. And, and he says there's so much stuff out there that, that we couldn't even write enough books to contain it. So John's admitting that there's more information about Jesus, and it may have been passed down through oral traditions, through, through um, uh, 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 one generation of Christians telling another generation of Christians what Jesus did, that sort of thing. And there may have been other literary works that existed that had recorded some of the oral traditions. We know for a fact that there's at least one letter to the Corinthians that is not in our Bible. Paul himself makes reference to a previous letter that he had written prior to 1 Corinthians. 
We don't have that letter. So there's other content out there that apostles wrote that the inspired men who authored the New Testament may have recorded. John says there's more about Jesus out there. But John also says, don't believe everything you hear. And he says that in his first letter. If you go to 1 John chapter 4 and look at verse, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1, it's there that John gives this warning. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, I know John didn't say, hey, test the documents, test the manuscripts, test the letters. He didn't specifically say, you've got to test everything that's written. But that's part of the implication, whether it's somebody speaking and preaching or somebody writing something, John's saying, you've got to test it. You've got to test it because there are false teachers out there. That was a problem they faced in the first century. And so here, when we consider what the instructions that Paul gave in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the instructions that John gives here in, in uh, 1 John chapter 4, what we see is that the New Testament contains instructions regarding authentication. That you've got to test this stuff. You've got to make sure you check it out. It's the same thing that Paul was preaching to the Bereans. Hey, when I'm here, when I'm here teaching and you're going home and you're comparing to the Scripture, that's what you're supposed to do because you're testing it out. You're authenticating the message that I presented. And that's what was expected of the New Testament church, the first century church, I should say. And then here's the thing. From there, we, we can see that the New Testament church, or excuse me, that the New Testament itself contains instructions regarding authentication, but the New Testament also contains instructions regarding communication. Uh oh, I think I skipped over it. There we go. The New Testament also contains instructions about communication. Let me explain what I mean. You can journey through the New Testament and you'll see repeatedly an instruction for the, 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 the letters that have been written to these churches to be read publicly. So let me give you an example uh, going back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 27. Paul has this instruction for that congregation. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. When Paul wrote a letter to a church, he expected them to read it to the entire congregation. It would become public record. And that's important because you have to think that this isn't a society that mass-produced books. So if a letter is written to a church, the only way that the members of that congregation can hear its contents is for somebody to stand up before them and read it. And my guess is they didn't just read it once. It's not like a thank you note that we get, and on Sunday morning we might read it, and then we post it on the bulletin board and assume everybody knows about it. It's a little more important than that. And, and, and Paul instructs them to read these things publicly. We can go to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13, and there's a similar instruction there, where Paul writing to Timothy, not to a congregation per se, but to Timothy, to an individual, to a minister. And he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Now, and specifically what Paul's saying is the reading of Scripture, which would be a reference to the Old Testament. But there is this 
importance given to reading material that comes from God. That's the idea that we take away from Timothy here. Also, there's Colossians chapter 4 and verse 15. This is a fascinating verse. Because the, the letter of Col- that we call Colossians was written to the church in Colossae. And then towards the end of the letter, Paul says, When this letter has been read among you, among the congregation in Colossae, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Can you tell me where the epistle to the Laodiceans is in our Bible? Is it after Philippians? Is it, is it, is it, is it before Philemon? Where, where is it? It's another reference to a letter that we don't have in our possession. We don't have saved in a manuscript form. Paul wrote a letter to the church in Laodicea, which was only a few miles away from Colossae. Those two congregations were very close to each other and were obviously sister congregations. And what Paul says is, hey, here's what you do. You finish reading this letter, send it over to the church in Laodicea, and then you get their letter and, and, and take it with you so you can read it. I want, you to, I want both congregations to know what I wrote in these letters. Do you know what that is? That's circulation. That's saying, hey, the material that has been given to you is beneficial for everyone. Here's another passage. It's from Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3. And it's an interesting blessing, and, and, and Brother Clover may have even talked about this passage a few weeks ago when he did a lesson on, on the first chapter of Revelation. But look at the blessing that's mentioned here by John. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. See, when he wrote Revelation, it's addressed on behalf of God It's addressed to seven specific congregations in Asia, in the province of Asia. And the expectation is that somebody will stand before the congregation and read the letter. Read the, I shouldn't just say letter, the document of Revelation. And there's a blessing pronounced on the one whose responsibility it is to read that. So by by these passages, what we can deduce is that there's an expectation that such documents are going to be publicly read and publicly shared. Because when we continue on in this train of thought, the New Testament, we'll find out, also contains instructions regarding circulation. We've already appealed to Colossians chapter 4, where the letter to Colossae is supposed to be passed on to the church in Laodicea. We've already referenced Revelation, but this is a different passage from Revelation it references the fact that uh, John, that this document is written to the churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now here's the thing, John didn't write seven different versions of Revelation. He wrote Revelation one time, and then he sent it likely to Ephesus. And if you look at a map of Asia Minor at that time, these towns almost, not quite, but almost form a circular route. The idea seems to be that Ephesus, once you've read this, send it on to the next town so they can read it. And I'm certain what happens, well, I'm certain, I can't say that. My guess is that what happens here is Ephesus receives it, and before they send it on, they make themselves a copy of it. So they can keep reading it and be reminded of the message from the Lord. And then it gets sent on to Smyrna, and and Smyrna gets it, and they're going to send it on to Pergamum, and it's going to pass through all these congregations because it's being circulated, and that's how God intended the book of Revelation to be shared there in the first century. 
So when we talk about canonicity, the first thing we have to do is we have to look at the first century and see how they laid the groundwork, how they prepared for a canon to be brought together. They may not have realized the entirety of what they were doing, but they started preparation by, by paying attention to the authenticity of each document they received, by making sure that what they received was publicly communicated to their entire congregation, and by sharing in the responsibility of circulating that material to other congregations. Let me see here. I, I think I left off a couple of passages like James chapter 1 and 1 Peter chapter 1 where we do receive reference to the fact that their letters are written to multiple people spread throughout the Roman, pro, the Roman Empire. So I, I, we'll move on past that. So we've talked about first century preparation. Now let's get back to this idea of canonicity. What happens next to help develop the canon? And after you have the first century preparation, you then enter into um, the second century in particular, where you start seeing specific materials referenced by the apostolic fathers. Now let me explain what I mean by that. The texts that eventually would be canonized were referenced by this group that we call the Apostolic Fathers during the first half of the second century. Now, that may not sound like it's a big deal, but here's what happens. In those first 50 years after the first century transitions into the second century, you start having leading members of the church quoting from the text that we now consider to be the New Testament. Now, they're not calling it the New Testament. They're not able to actually say a, a chapter and verse. They're just quoting from these documents that they have read, that they have come across. And their quoting of the New Testament provides evidence that that document that they're quoting from is considered inspired and authoritative. Let me uh, tell you about the Apostolic Fathers for a second. That term, Apostolic Father, was given to a select group of church leaders who supposedly had personal knowledge of some of the apostles and lived during a span of time from about 95 A.D. to 150 A.D. So therefore, they possibly even overlapped in life with some of the apostles, such as John. The um, literature that is generally accepted with this group includes the works of Clement, Ignatius, Papias, Polycarp, Hermas, as well as some specific works that we don't know the exact author of, such as the Epistle of Barnabas and the Didache. Now, the Apostolic Fathers, they don't present a canonical list. They don't say, hey, these are the accepted books of the New Testament. They never give us a list, but they did reference canonical literature in their writings and thereby ascribed an implicit authority to the canonical text that would later develop into the basis for which these books were admitted into the New Testament. See, these early church leaders, they, they weren't trying to say, here's the authoritative list of what you should be reading and call it Bible. Instead, they were just simply encouraging and educating Christians by referencing and quoting and citing their knowledge of particular writings that were deemed authoritative. And their appeal to certain teachings and their appeal to certain passages revealed their knowledge, their awareness of these 
texts. And it revealed their acceptance of these texts as authoritative. I'm going to give you a few examples. Well, I've got a lot of examples up here, so I'm probably going to have to cut a few of them off, but bear with me. I want you to see how this works. So this is from 1 Clement. Again, the texts that I'm about to show you are not inspired, are not to be considered part of, a, of the Bible. They, they are not accepted in that capacity. These are just the writings of people that came in the generation immediately after the apostles. And they're making reference to content that comes from our New Testament. So in the letter of 1 Clement, Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 38 is cited. And if you read along there, you'll see where I've put in brackets where certain parts of Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 38 are referenced. Clement writes, Let us specifically remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he spake when teaching gentleness and longsuffering, for he spake thus, Show mercy that you may, ob that you may obtain mercy. That's from Luke chapter 6 and verse 36. Forgive that it may be given unto you. That's Luke chapter 6, verse 37. As ye do, so shall it be done unto you. Luke chapter 6, verse 31. As ye give, so shall it be given unto you. Luke chapter 6 and verse 38. As ye judge, so shall ye be judged. Luke chapter 6 and verse 37. As ye are kindly affectioned, so shall kindness be showed unto you. With whatsoever measure ye measure, with the same shall it be measured unto you. Luke chapter 6 and verse 38. Now, he doesn't say, this is from Luke chapter 6 and verse 38, or whatever it is. He doesn't make that identification as he's writing. He's just quoting from this gospel what he is familiar with. And what this does for us is it just tells us that when Clement wrote this letter, he was familiar with Luke's gospel. By the time Clement wrote that letter, Luke's gospel had reached him so that he could reference these passages. Another example from Clement's work, and um, I should back this up real quick. I don't know if you can see down there. Uh, well, I'm too short to see over this backdrop right now. But the, the time frame of Clement's life approximately is 35 to 101 A.D. So that gives you an idea of when he lived. Now think about that. The church was established somewhere in the late 20s A.D. more than likely. So this guy's only a few, born a few years after the church is established. The peak of his life is going to run parallel to the, the, what we read in Acts and, and what Paul and Peter are doing in ministry. Um, so just to make that point for you, uh, Clement also uh, has this passage that sounds very familiar from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 10 through 13, he says, Take into your hands the epistle of the blessed Apostle Paul. Now, he doesn't tell us which one. What did he first write unto you in the beginning of his gospel? Of a truth. He warned you spiritually in a letter concerning himself and concerning Cephas and Apollos, because even then there were factions among you. You go back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, and you'll be reminded that in that passage, Paul is writing to the Corinthians and saying, don't have factions. Some of you are saying you are of, of Cephas. Some are saying they are of Apollos. Some are saying they are of Paul. And he criticizes that. And that is what um, Clement here is referencing. And that indicates that he has knowledge of the letter of 1 Corinthians. 
Another uh, apostolic father is Ignatius, and in his epistle to the Ephesians, not to be confused with the biblical epistle to the Ephesians, he makes reference to, guess what? The epistle to the Ephesians. He writes that, So by martyrdom I may indeed become the disciple of him who gave himself for us an offering and sacrifice to God. The quoted passage there is, a, is referencing what we can find in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2. He also makes reference to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in this same epistle that he wrote. He writes, Let my spirit be counted as nothing for the sake of the cross, which is a stumbling block to those that do not believe, but to us salvation and life eternal. Where is the wise man? Where the disputer? Now here he quotes from a later passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but if you look at verses 18 through 20, you'll see the reference that he's making here. And these aren't perfectly crafted quotes. These aren't the kind of quotes where you would have a footnote in there and you'd be citing it as a reference and making sure that it's all done correctly for your paper that you're turning in in grad school. It's not that kind of quote. They're, they're quoting from memory when they do this, more so than from, um, and maybe not always from memory, but they're, they're, not, they're not quoting on the level that we westernized Americans might quote. So we have the epistle to the Ephesians by Ignatius that shows his familiarity with the letter to the Ephesians and 1 Corinthians. Papias, there's this collection of documents called, uh, this document called Fragments of Papias. Papias cites John chapter 14 and verse 2. He writes, In that on this account the Lord said, In my Father's house are many mansions. Now many of you probably recognize that quote from John, from, uh, John chapter 14 and verse 2. That one stands out to you. And Papias shows his familiarity with John here by quoting John 14 too. He also shows his familiarity ah, with 1 Corinthians again. But what's fascinating is he's quoting a passage that deals, um, I believe, with yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with death, resurrection, and heaven, that whole section of 1 Corinthians 15. And he has a couple of passages and uh, statements in here that reference 1 Corinthians 15, he writes in that, In due time the Son will yield up his work to the Father, even as it is said by the Apostle. Notice, he identifies that this is coming from an Apostle. What will be quoted next came from an Apostle. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. You can find that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25 through 26. Later he, he quotes, But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is expected which did put all things under him. Expected, that's accepted. I misread that. I apologize. And when all things shall be subdued under him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. That comes from verse 27 and 28 of 1 Corinthians 15. So Papias shows his familiarity with John's gospel and with 1 Corinthians. Now I've got a few here from a guy named Polycarp um, who cites here on this screen, wait, wait, i got to remember I'm not controlling it from down here. And yeah, I didn't connect there. Anyway, I, by the way, this is kind of hard because I don't have projection back there to see what you're looking at tonight. We have an issue technologically, so I'm trying to do this two ways, and that's why I keep looking over my shoulder. Polycarp will cite 1 Timothy chapter 6 in this passage. I'm, I'm not going to read this one because you can uh, look through it as you could have done on all of these if I keep the screen up in time, but um, I'm trying to trying to you know, make the class go on. Anyway, I do want to point to this screen, though, with Polycarp. He references two different passages 
Matthew and 2 Corinthians in the same breath. If then we entreat the Lord that he would forgive us, we also ought to forgive. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12, right after the model prayer. For we are before the eyes of our Lord and God, and we must all stand at the judgment seat of Christ, and each man must give an account of himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. I point this one out because this is neat. Now he's com- the, the authors are combining scriptures into one stream of thought. They don't feel the need to say, hey, I'm, I can only quote this and then i got to stop and, and, and I've got to acknowledge that I'm quoting somebody else. It's just a stream of thought where he's pulling passages from different texts. So it's starting to show that they have familiarity, not just with these individual texts, but how they relate to one another and how the teachings of Jesus in Matthew's gospel relate to the teachings of, of Paul in his letter to the Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians. And then um, Polycarp also... Um, cites 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, or 2 John chapter 1 and verse 7. This is interesting because John uses such similar languages, similar language in his writings, that it's, you can't really decide if the reference here is coming from the gospel, I mean the book of 1 John or the book of 2 John, because those two verses are very identical. For everyone who shall not confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is Antichrist. It could be from 1 John or it could be from 2 John. We don't know. We don't know which one of those uh, letters he's familiar with, but we know he's familiar with at least one of them, if not both of them. I find that one interesting just because it could go either way. And then finally there's this one, where we have three passages mentioned in the same breath, essentially. Let us therefore without ceasing hold fast by our hope. That's Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23. And by the earnest of our righteousness, which is Jesus Christ, who took up our sins in his own body upon the tree, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22, but for our sakes he endured all things that we might live in him, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9. It's just a stream of thought where he's pulling verses from multiple sources and citing them as he, not citing them, but quoting them as he goes along. I want to show a diagram now. This diagram I've pulled uh, out of uh, one of the books that I use as a reference, and it shows you which of these early church fathers, as they are quote-unquote referred to at times, which books of the Bible get referenced by them. So I've listed, uh, I think there's 12 different people up there, some of which we've already talked about. We've, talked, we've made reference to Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp, and Papias. But you can see these... Um, approximate dates attached to each of these uh, writers. These are, are dates attri- that uh, their, their literature is typically identified as falling into. So it may not be the, the dates associated with their birth and death, but the dates of, of their, their, their writings. And you can see, I, right now I've just got the Gospels and Acts on the screen. And while you can look at the earlier authors... Most of them are, are showing familiarity with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not John, not Acts as much. But by the time you get to the bottom of the list, you start seeing that familiarity with all five books. That gives you an idea about the Gospels and Acts. Same authors. Now I'm going to move on to a screen that gives us all of the Pauline letters. Now I had to abbreviate all these letters just due to the size. But you can, you can hopefully figure out what each of the the letters is up there with the columns. And you can see how there's a lot of familiarity 
with like 1 Corinthians, less familiarity with Philemon. But from the time of the, this is not a complete list of all the, the people who wrote in the second century, in the third century, but it is a, a breakdown of, of people from, from around 100 A.D. through uh, 250 A.D., roughly. And you'll see that as you get towards the end of the second century, to, as you get to Irenaeus and, and beyond, you start seeing familiarity with almost every Pauline letter, and it's not till origin that we start showing familiarity with the final letter of Philemon. And then here's the general epistles and Revelation. Same grouping. And you can see that there is uh, less familiarity early on with uh, Second Peter, with Second and Third John, with Jude and Revelation. But by the time we get to the uh, uh, later half of the second century, you start showing the familiarity with books like Revelation and Jude. The one book that really struggles in this grouping is Third John, but it, the last guy down there does show his familiarity with it, and it's it's un unknown if Origen was familiar with it. I'm not sure what the question marks meant. I couldn't find why they put question marks on the table that I, that I was able to get this from. But the point is this. Not every second century Christian author, not every early church father was familiar with every book of the Bible. But in the second century, every book of the Bible of, of the New Testament was familiar to a, an apostolic father or a church father. Let me go back and find what this next table will convey to us real quick. See, the, the fact that every book is quoted, and really that's what I should be pointing out, is not just as their reference to these uh, books by these authors, but they're quoting from these books. The fact that every book is quoted as canonical by some father is evidence that during the second century a canon was developing. And that should be sufficient to indicate that the, those books that are quoted were recognized as inspired from the earliest days. Now this is another chart. You can see reference to a few of the guys we've talked about. And this is a chart that tallies how many references in the writings of, say, the first guy, Justin Martyr, are there to the Gospels. How many to Acts, how many to the Pauline epistles, the general epistles, and Revelation. It's astounding how many quotes are pulled from those texts by these guys. Now, now it's, Tertullian might have three different documents that quote the same passage from, from Romans or something like that. But this is just trying to show you how much quoting is done in the second and third century by early church leaders from the New Testament. It has been said that if we had no manuscripts of the New Testament, Every passage of Scripture has been quoted by some church father that we could still assemble the New Testament without a manuscript. That's fascinating to me. That God, in His infinite wisdom, ensured that there was more than one way to bring His text together for us. And so when we consider how the New Testament canon develops, we start in the first century. And we see how preparation is being made for it. Maybe, maybe unknowingly by those guys, but preparation is being made as they 
consider the authenticity of texts as they uh, engage in the public reading of texts and as they collect texts from various places. And then that preparation turns into quotation in the second century. As the next generation of Christians, they take up the task of referencing, quoting, and alluding to the text of these books that are considered inspired and authentic. And that takes us to the next phase of the development of the canon. And this has really less to do with positive things Christians are doing and more to do with negative things Christians are doing. Because what we'll discover in the second century AD is that there are two heretical movements that develop that test the boundaries of the New Testament. And I'm going to try to cover those fairly quickly here uh, before our time runs out. But during the second century, the need for a canon became evident after two heretical movements threatened the church during the second century. The first one was, oops, let me get there, was led by a guy named Marcion. Now, Marcion, he rejected the Old Testament as well as any connections between Christianity and Judaism because he was unable to reconcile the God of love with the Jewish God of justice. He just couldn't see how the God of the Old Testament, who would strike us a dead, could be the same God that in his mercy sent Jesus to the cross. And so Marcion, who lived approximately from AD, AD 85 to 160, he outright rejected the Old Testament, and he rejected anything that made reference to the Old Testament. He concluded that Jesus came not to fulfill Judaism, but to replace it with Christianity, and therefore he refused to accept any elements of Christianity that, re that reflected Jewish influence. And so Marcion proposed a canon, one of the first canons proposed. But his canon was very mutilated. It included only Luke's gospel from, the gospel from all the gospels, but there were edits done to it to remove any elements of Judaism. The absence of the other three gospels, Acts, and other epistles... Oh, sorry, I'm reading ahead. So Marcion included Luke, but it was an edited Luke with a majority of the first four chapters taken out because he didn't want to read about Jesus' Jewish birth. And then he included Paul's epistles, some of them, I should say. He accepted Galatians, Corinthians, Romans, Thessalonians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. 2 Corinthians was combined with 1 Corinthians, and 2 Thessalonians was combined with 1 Thessalonians. And Ephesians was identified by him as Laodiceans. There was a, a time where people thought the letter to the Ephesians was actually the letter to the Laodiceans. But if you think about it, he left out Matthew, Mark, John, Acts. He left out Peter's letters, John's letters, Jude, Revelation. He didn't want anything that cast favorable light on Judaism. So here's Marcion. He comes on the scene. He says, all right, I think we need to have an authoritative list of what books are accepted. And since I don't like the connections between Christianity and Judaism, I'm taking out anything that, that uh, shines good, positive light on Judaism. 
He gets excommunicated in 144 AD because of his teachings that were deemed heretical. But Marcion exposed a problem that the church had to face. Marcion showed the church that we have to open the canon to include texts that we know are authoritative inspired and not allow it to be closed by somebody who has a particular bent doctrinally. And so Marcion influenced the development of the canon because the church found it necessary to defend the literature that he excluded. Marcion caused them to go, okay, the canon has to be open a little bit more than he's letting it. Then along comes a guy named Montanus. Montanus, uh, let's see here. Montanus um, began, quote-unquote, prophesying around 156 A.D. He claimed that he was the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised in John chapter 14, 15, and 16. He was that comforter that was to come. And as a result, he and his followers began writing down their own oracles, which were typically apocalyptic in nature. And they deemed their writings to be equal to and or superior to the writings of the New Testament. So Montanus comes along. He goes the exact opposite direction of Marcion. Marcion wanted to say, nope, these are the only books that are allowed. Montanus said, no, no, no. I got more stuff to include. And so what ends up happening is that Montanus influenced the development of the canon because the church found it necessary to prevent new lit literature written after the apostolic age from being added. In other words, Montanus comes along and the church goes, wait a second, there's a point at which the canon does have to close. We can't just let everything in. We have to ensure that, that the books that are included were written in the proper time frame of Holy Spirit influence and written by authoritative people that we know had inspiration from God. So these two guys, Marcion and Montanus, in the second century, brought about the need for the canon to be developed. Marcion comes along and they realize, all right, we've got to open the canon up and include things that he's not. Montanus comes along and they go, okay, we've got to close the canon at some point because we can't let everything in because not everything is inspired by God. And so when we consider the development of the New Testament canon, the third phase, after the preparation done in the first century, and after the, the references to, to text in the New Testament as authoritative in the second century, we then also in the second century have these heretical movements that help us understand there has to be some parameters around the books that are accepted in the New Testament. I'm going to pause there. I'm going to bring, bring our study to a close because I don't want to jump into the next next phase just yet. I want to save that for when, when we come back in two weeks for this study. But since I don't, since we have like five minutes left, does anybody have any questions? I've never done that. Great. No, seriously, anybody want to ask anything? Doesn't have to be just tonight. Yes, ma'am. Seventeen. I, misprint. Sorry. Thank you, Billy. It's supposed to be 317. That was me intentionally making a mistake to see if anybody's paying attention, just for the record. Just for the record. Any questions about anything related to our study of how we got the Bible thus far? It doesn't just have to be on canon tonight. Anybody just thoroughly confused because that's how I do things? 
Say what? Yes, it is. But it's a wonderful and, and fascinating study. And again, the goal of the study is for us to have confidence that the, the, the pages of our New Testament are in fact the Word of God. The ultimate objective is for us to have a greater sense of appreciation and, and sense of trust in God's revealed Word through the New Testament. All right. I must be an amazing teacher. At least that's the assumption I'm going to go with, okay? You can burst my bubble later, and somebody will, and that's fine. But I'm going to go and conclude our study tonight because the, the next phase has to do with the, um, the, the start of canonical lists, and we'll just get our feet wet, and then I'll have to review it with you in two weeks anyway. So we'll just save it for then. I appreciate your, your presence for the study. Our, our next bell for the kids should be ringing any minute now. So I'm going to let, let us go with a word of prayer, if you don't mind. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this evening and this opportunity we had to study. It is our prayer that our, our time dedicated to this tonight has uh, benefited us in our appreciation of your word, and it has helped develop in our, our, our faith in your word. Lord, we ask that you be with us as we leave here tonight, and as we go through this week, as we go through each day, help us to live lives worthy of the calling. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son to die for us, and may we reflect in our lives daily an appreciation for what you have done and for what he has done. It is through his name that we pray.